This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Quaestio de Cantoris by Primo Levi, translated from the Italian by Jenny McPhee, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 2015. The centaur's origins are legendary, but legends that they pass down among themselves are very different from the classical tales we know. The story was chosen by Jhumpa Lahiri, who won the Pulitzer Prize for her debut story collection, Interpreter of Maladies, in 2000, and recently edited the Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories. Hi, Jhumpa. Hi, Deborah. As I just mentioned, you recently edited and published the Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories, which includes 40 Italian stories that were written over the course of the 20th century. And you included this story by Primo Levi. What was it about this story that made you want to have it in there? Well, as with many of my selections, they come, they grow out of conversations I've had with people I've met over the past seven years as I've been living in Italy. So when I was considering a story by Levy, I immediately turned to um, my friend, uh, a man named Marco Belpoliti, who has written a lot about Primo Levi and has edited his completed works uh, in Italian for Einaudi and um, is really, I would say, Italy's leading critical authority voice um, on Levi. And, and I, you know, I mentioned the project to him and I said, what do you think about Levi? And I already wanted to, to choose a story from the natural histories because it's a collection that Levi writes after sort of establishing himself as a writer who talks about his experiences in surviving the Holocaust, uh, surviving a year in a concentration camp, um, and, and the collection that he publishes after that represents another side of Levy. Mm-hmm. And, and it was Marco that, you know, suggested this story because it is possibly the most representative uh, and I agree of Levy's identity. I mean, Levy himself saw himself as a centaur, and he, I think, regarded the centaur as as a creature on so many levels that reflected his hybrid essence, right? As both an Italian and a Jew, both as a writer and a chemist. And in this case, if we just take the writer Primo Levi, you know, setting aside the, the chemist Primo Levi. If we just look at the writer Primo Levi, we see how he's a hybrid in terms of his sensibility as well. So on the one hand, he's the author of If This Is a Man and The Truce, and then he can write in this completely different vein. He can write about mythological characters. He can write splicing in all of this fascinating scientific language and text. I mean, this story itself is such an amazing hybrid Mm-hmm. Um, a, a hybrid narrative, just literally a hybrid narrative in the way it's constructed. So it just felt that, in some sense, it was a self-portrait of Primo Levi. Mm-hmm. I think he actually called it autobiographical and to his biographer. The story has an interesting history in that it was it was first published in Italian in 1961 in a magazine, and then it was included, as you said, in this collection, Natural Histories, which was published under a pseudonym because yes. his editor, Italo Calvino, didn't 
think it was quite appropriate for this serious author of Holocaust memoirs to write fantastical sci-fi biological fiction, as he called it. And then, mysteriously, when the collection was translated into English for the first time, the story Quaestio de Cantoris was dropped or wasn't translated. So it seems that it's sort of been disowned several times <laughs> along the way, which is, which I, I can't find a reason for. Hmm, that's interesting. That I didn't know about the original English. I know, I know that Calvino was was reading these stories and mm-hmm. and was advising Levy in terms of, you know, what to put in and what to keep out and to keep working on uh, certain stories and and so forth. I'm not sure if actually we can give Calvino the the responsibility of actually advising Levy to to publish the book under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. I believe that was another person in Einaudi. I think okay. it was the sort of publicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, director, uh, that kind of, you know, that was the drive just to not startle his readers, literally, right? Um, of course, Levy's very transparent in the text he writes that accompanies this book so that one clearly, you know, he's, he comes right out and, and, and says, you know, he doesn't say, I'm Primo Levi, but he, he basically does. He says that these stories are fundamentally linked to his experiences in the camps Mm-hmm. And and we see that in in all of the stories and this story in particular, with in terms of what it talks about and how it talks about it, there's so many echoes, um, unsettling echoes, to all of those themes. Well, I think we should talk about those after we hear the story. So now here's Jhumpa Lahiri reading Quaestio de Cantoris by Primo Levi. Quaestio de Cantoris. My father kept him in a stall because he didn't know where else to keep him. He had been given to my father by a friend, a sea captain, who said that he had bought him in Salonika. However, I learned from him directly that he was born in Colophon. I had been strictly forbidden to go anywhere near him because, I was told, he was easily angered and would kick. But from my personal experience, I could confirm that this was an old superstition and from the time I was an adolescent, I never paid much attention to the prohibition, and in fact spent many memorable hours with him, especially in winter, and wonderful times in summer too, when Traki, that was his name, with his own hands put me on his back and took off at a mad gallop toward the woods on the hills. He had learned our language fairly easily, but retained a slight Levantine accent. Despite his two hundred and sixty years, His appearance was youthful in both his human and his equine aspects. What I will relate here is the fruit of our long conversations. The centaur's origins are legendary, but legends that they pass down among themselves are very different from the classical tales we know. Remarkably, their traditions also refer to a Noah-like inventor and savior, a highly intelligent man they call Kutnofeset. But there were no centaurs on Kutnofeset's ark. Nor, by the way, were there seven pairs of every species of clean beast, and a pair of every species of the beasts that are not clean. The centaurian tradition is more rational than biblical, holding that only the archetypical animals, the key species, were saved man, but not the monkey, the horse, but not the donkey or the wild ass the rooster and the crow, but not the vulture or the hoopoe 
or the Griefalcon. How, then, did these species come about? Immediately afterward, the legend says, when the waters retreated, a deep layer of warm mud covered the earth. Now this mud, which harbored in its decay all the enzymes from what had perished in the flood, was extraordinarily fertile. As soon as it was touched by the sun, it was covered with shoots from which grasses and plants of every type sprang forth. And, further, its soft, moist bosom was host to the marriages of all the species saved in the ark. It was a time, never to be repeated, of wild, ecstatic fecundity, in which the entire universe felt love so intensely that it nearly returned to chaos. Those were the days when the earth itself fornicated with the sky, when everything germinated and everything was fruitful. Not only every marriage, but every union, every contact, every encounter, even fleeting, even between different species, even between beasts and stones, even between plants and stones, was fertile and produced offspring not in a few months but in a few days. The sea of warm mud, which concealed the earth's cold, prudish face, was one boundless nuptial bed, all its recesses boiling over with desire and teeming with jubilant germs. This second creation was the true creation, because, according to what is passed down among the centaurs, there is no other way to explain certain similarities, certain convergences observed by all. Why is the dolphin similar to the fish, and yet gives birth and nurses its offspring? Because it's the child of a tuna and a cow. Where do butterflies get their delicate colors and their ability to fly? They are the children of a flower and a fly. Tortoises are the children of a frog and a rock. Bats of an owl and a mouse. Conchs of a snail and a polished pebble. Hippopotami of a horse and a river. Vultures of a worm and an owl. And the big whales, the leviathans, how to explain their immense mass, their wooden bones, their black and oily skin, and their fiery breath are living testimony to a venerable union in which, even when the end of all flesh has been decreed, that same primordial mud got greedy hold of the ark's feminine keel, made of gopher wood and covered inside and out with shiny pitch. Such was the origin of every form, whether living today or extinct. Dragons and chameleons, chimeras and harpies, crocodiles and minotaurs, elephants and giants, whose petrified bones are still found today, to our amazement, in the heart of the mountains. And so it was for the centaurs themselves, since in this festival of origins, in this panspermia, the few survivors of the human family also participated. Notably, Cam, the profligate son, participated. The first generation of centaurs originated in his wild passion for a Thessalian horse. From the beginning, these progeny were noble and strong, preserving the best of both equine and human nature. They were at once wise and courageous, generous and shrewd, good at hunting and singing, at waging war and at observing the heavens. It seemed, in fact, as happens with the most felicitous unions, that the virtues of the parents were magnified in their offspring, since, at least in the beginning, they were more powerful and faster racers than their Thessalian mothers, and a good deal wiser and more cunning than Black Cam and their other human fathers. 
This would also explain, according to some, their longevity, though others have attributed it to their eating habits, which I will come to in a moment. Or their longevity could simply be a projection across time of their great vitality. And this I too believe resolutely, and the story I am about to tell attests to it, that in hereditary terms the herbivore power of the horse counts less than the red blindness of the bloody and forbidden spasm, the moment of human feral fullness in which the centaurs were conceived. Whatever we may think of this, anyone who has carefully considered the centaurs' classical traditions cannot help noticing that centauresses are never mentioned. As I learned from Thraki, they do not, in fact, exist. The man-mare union, very seldom fertile today, produces and has produced only male centaurs, for which there must be a fundamental reason, though at present it eludes us. As for the inverse, the union between stallions and women, this has scarcely ever occurred, and comes about through the solicitation of dissolute women, who by nature are not particularly inclined to procreate. In the exceptional cases in which fertilization is successful in these rare unions, a dualistic female offspring is produced. Her two natures, however, inversely assembled. The creatures have the head, neck, and front feet of a horse, but their back and belly are those of a human female, and the hind legs are human. During his long life, Thraki had encountered very few of them, and he assured me that he felt no attraction to these squalid monsters. They were not proud and nimble, but insufficiently vital. They were infertile, idle, and transient. They did not become familiar with man or learn to obey his commands, but lived miserably in the densest forests, not in herds, but in rural solitude. They fed on grass and berries, and when they were surprised by a man, they had the curious habit of always presenting themselves to him head first, as if embarrassed by their human half. Thraki was born in Colophon, in a secret union between a man and one of the numerous Thessalian horses that are still wild on the island. I am afraid that among the readers of these notes are some who may refuse to believe these assertions, since official science, permeated as it still is today with Aristotelianism, denies the possibility of a fertile union between different species. But official science often lacks humility. Such unions are, indeed, generally infertile, but how often has evidence been sought? No more than a few dozen times. And has it been sought among all the innumerable possible couplings? Certainly not. Since I have no reason to doubt what Thraki has told me about himself, I must therefore encourage the incredulous to consider that there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy. He lived mostly in solitude, left to himself, which was the common destiny of those like him. He slept in the open, standing on all four hooves, with his head on his arms, which he would lean against a low branch or a rock. He grazed in the island's fields and glades, or gathered fruit from branches. On the hottest days he would go down to one of the deserted beaches, and there he would bathe, swimming like a horse, chest and head erect, and then he would gallop for a long while, violently churning up the wet sand. But the bulk of his time in every season was devoted to food. 
In fact, during the forays that Thraki, in the vigor of his youth, frequently undertook among the barren cliffs and gorges of his native island, he always, following an instinct for prudence, brought along, tucked under his arms, two big bundles of grass or foliage, gathered in times of rest. Although centaurs are limited to a strictly vegetarian diet by their predominantly equine constitution, it must be remembered that they have a torso and a head like a man's, which obliges them to introduce through a small human mouth the considerable quantity of grass, straw, or grain necessary to sustain their large bodies. These foods, notably of limited nutritional value, also require long mastication, since human teeth are not well adapted to the grinding of forage. In conclusion, the nourishment of centaurs is a laborious process. By physical necessity, they are required to spend three-quarters of their time chewing. This fact is not lacking in authoritative testimonials. First and foremost, that of Ucoligon of Samos, Digfil 2411-8, and 43 Pasim, who attributes the centaur's proverbial wisdom to their alimentary regimen, which consists of one continuous meal from dawn to dusk. This deters them from other vain or baleful activities, such as gossip or the pursuit of riches, and contributes to their usual self-restraint. Bede also mentions this in his Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum. It is rather strange that the classical mythological tradition neglects this characteristic of centaurs. The truth of it rests on reliable evidence, and, as we have shown, it can be deduced by a simple consideration of natural philosophy. To return to Thraki, his education was, by our criteria, fragmentary. He learned Greek from the island shepherds, whose company he occasionally sought out, despite his shy and taciturn nature. From his own observations, he learned many subtle and intimate things about grasses, plants, forest animals, water, clouds, stars, and planets. I myself noticed that, even after his capture, and under a foreign sky, he could feel the approach of a gale or the imminence of a snowstorm many hours before it actually arrived. Though I couldn't say how, nor could he himself, he also felt the grain growing in the fields, he felt the pulse of water in underground streams, and he sensed the erosion of flooded rivers. When Desimone's cow gave birth two hundred meters away from us, he felt a reflex in his own gut. The same thing happened when the tenant farmer's daughter gave birth. In fact, on a spring evening, he informed me that a birth was taking place and, more precisely, in a particular corner of the hayloft. We went there and found that a bat had just brought into the world six blind little monsters and was feeding them minuscule portions of her milk. All centaurs are made this way, he told me, feeling every germination, animal, human, or vegetable, as a wave of joy running through their veins. They also perceive, in the precordial region, and in the form of anxiety and tremulous tension, every desire and every sexual encounter that occurs in their vicinity. Therefore, even though they are usually chaste, they enter into a state of vivid agitation during the season of love.
We lived together for a long time. In many ways, I can say that we grew up together. Despite his advanced age, he was actually a young creature in everything he said and did. And he learned things so easily that it seemed pointless, not to mention awkward, to send him to school. I educated him myself, almost inadvertently, passing on to him the knowledge that I learned from my teachers. We kept him hidden as much as possible, partly because of his own explicit wish, partly because of a form of exclusive and jealous affection that we all felt for him, and partly because a combination of rationality and intuition advised us to shield him from unnecessary contact with our human world. Naturally, word of his presence in our barn leaked out among the neighbors. At first they asked a lot of questions, some rather intrusive, but then, as will happen, their curiosity diminished from lack of nourishment. A few of our intimate friends were allowed to see him, the first of whom were the De Simones, and they swiftly became his friends too. Only once, when a horsefly bite provoked a painful abscess in his rump, did we require the skill of a veterinarian. But he was an understanding and discreet man, who most scrupulously promised to keep this professional secret, and, as far as I know, kept his promise. Things went differently with the blacksmith. Nowadays, blacksmiths are unfortunately rather scarce. We found one two hours away by foot, and he was a yokel, stupid, and brutish. My father tried in vain to persuade him to maintain a certain reserve, in part by paying him tenfold for his services. It made no difference. Every Sunday at the tavern he gathered a crowd around him and told the entire village about his strange client. Luckily, he liked his wine and was in the habit of telling tall tales when he was drunk. So he wasn't taken too seriously. I find it painful to write this story. It is a story from my youth, and I feel that in writing it, I am expelling it from myself, and that later I will feel bereft of something strong and pure. One summer, Teresa de Simone, my childhood friend and cohort, returned to her parents' house. She had gone to the city to study, and I hadn't seen her for many years. I found her changed, and the change troubled me. Maybe I had fallen in love, but with little consciousness of it. What I mean is, I did not admit it to myself, not even hypothetically. She was quite lovely, shy, calm, and serene. As I've already mentioned, the De Simones were among the few neighbors whom we saw with some regularity. They knew Traki and loved him. After Teresa's return, we spent a long evening together, just the three of us. It was one of those unique, never-to-be-forgotten evenings. The moon, the crickets, the intense smell of hay, the air still and warm. We heard singing in the distance, and suddenly Traki began to sing without looking at us, as if in a dream. It was a long song, its rhythm bold and strong, with words I didn't understand. A Greek song, Thraki said, but when we asked him to translate it, he turned his head away and fell silent. We were all silent for a long time. Then Teresa went home. The following morning, Thraki drew me aside and said this, Oh, my dearest friend, my hour has come. I have fallen in love. That woman has got inside of me and possesses me. I desire to see her and hear her, perhaps even touch her and nothing else. I therefore desire something impossible. 
I am reduced to one point. There is nothing left of me except this desire. I am changing. I have changed. I have become another. He told me other things as well, which I hesitate to write, because it's unlikely that my words will do him justice. He told me that, since the previous night, he had become a battlefield that he understood, as he never had before, the exploits of his violent ancestors, Nessus, Pholus, that his entire human half was crammed with dreams, with noble, courtly, and vain fantasies, that he wanted to accomplish reckless feats and fight for justice with the strength of his own arms, raise to the ground the densest forest with his vehemence, run to the ends of the earth, discover and conquer new lands, and create there the work of a fertile civilization. All of this in a way that was obscure even to himself, he wanted to perform before the eyes of Teresa de Simone, to do it for her, to dedicate it to her. Finally, he told me, he realized the vanity of his dreams in the very act of dreaming them, and this was the content of the song of the previous evening, a song that he had learned long ago during his adolescence in Colophon, and which he had never understood and never sung until now. For many weeks, nothing else happened. We saw the De Simones every so often, but Traki's behavior revealed nothing of the storm that raged inside him. It was I, and no one else, who provoked the breakdown. One October evening, Traki was at the blacksmith's. I met Teresa, and we went for a walk together in the woods. We talked, and of whom but Traki? I didn't betray my friend's confidence, but I did worse. I quickly understood that Teresa was not as shy as she initially appeared to be. She chose, as if by chance, a narrow path that led into the thickest part of the woods. I knew it was a dead end, and knew that Teresa knew. Where the path came to an end, she sat down on dry leaves, and I did the same. The valley bell tower rang out seven times, and she pressed up against me in a way that rid me of all doubt. By the time we got home, Night had fallen, but Traki hadn't yet returned. I immediately realized that I had behaved badly. In fact, I realized it during the act itself, and still today it pains me. Yet I also know that the fault was not all mine, nor was it Teresa's. Traki was with us. We had immersed ourselves in his aura. We had gravitated into his field. I know this because I myself had seen that wherever he passed, Flowers bloomed before their time, and their pollen flew in his wake as he ran. Thraki didn't return. Over the following days, we laboriously reconstructed the rest of his story based upon witnesses' accounts and his tracks. After a night of anxious waiting for all of us, and of secret torment for me, I went to look for him myself at the blacksmith's. The blacksmith wasn't at home. He was in the hospital with a cracked skull and unable to speak. I found his assistant. He told me that Thraki had come at about six o'clock to get shooed. He was silent and sad, but tranquil. Without showing any impatience, he let himself be chained as usual, the uncivilized practice of this particular blacksmith, who, years earlier, had had a bad experience with a skittish horse. We had tried in vain to convince him that this precaution, 
was in every way absurd with regard to Thraki. Three of his hooves had already been shooed when a long and violent shudder coursed through him. The blacksmith turned on him with that harsh tone often used on horses. As Thraki's agitation seemed to increase, the blacksmith struck him with a whip. Thraki appeared to calm down, but his eyes were rolling around as if he were mad and he seemed to be hearing voices. Suddenly, with a furious tug, he pulled the chains from their wall mounts, and the end of one hit the blacksmith in the head, sending him to the floor in a faint. Thraki then threw himself against the door with all his might, head first, arms crossed over his head, and galloped off toward the hills while the four chains, still constricting his legs, whirled around, wounding him repeatedly. What time did that happen? I asked, with a disturbing presentiment. The assistant hesitated. It was not yet night, but he couldn't say precisely. Well, yes, now he remembered. Just a few seconds before Thraki pulled the chains from the wall, the time had rung from the bell tower, and the boss had said to him, in dialect so that Thraki wouldn't understand, It's already seven o'clock, if all my clients were as carish as this one. Seven o'clock! It wasn't difficult, unfortunately, to follow Thraki's furious flight. Even if no one had seen him, there were conspicuous traces of the blood he had lost, of the scrapes the chains had inflicted on tree trunks and rocks by the side of the road. He hadn't headed toward home or toward the De Simones. He had cleared the two-meter wooden fence that surrounded the Chiapasso property and crossed straight through the vineyards in a blind fury, knocking down stakes and vines breaking the thick iron wires that supported the vine shoots. He reached the barnyard and found the barn door bolted shut from the outside. He could have opened it easily with his hands. Instead, he picked up an old thresher, weighing well over 50 kilos, and hurled it at the door, reducing it to splinters. Only six cows, a calf, some chickens, and rabbits were in the barn. Thraki left immediately, and still at a mad gallop, headed toward Baron Calieri's estate. It was at least six and a half kilometers away, on the other side of the valley, but Thraki got there in a matter of minutes. He looked for the stable. He found it not with his first blow, but only after he had used his hooves and shoulders to knock down several doors. What he did in the stable we know from an eyewitness, a stable boy, who, at the sound of the door shattering, had had the good sense to hide in the hay, and from there had seen everything. Thraki hesitated for a moment on the threshold, panting and bloody. The horses, unsettled, tossed their heads, tugging on their halters. Thraki pounced on a three-year-old white mare. In one stroke, he severed the chain that bound her to the trough, and dragging her by that chain, led her outside. The mare didn't put up any resistance, which was strange, the stable boy told me, since she had a rather skittish and reluctant character and was not in heat. They galloped together as far as the river. Here, Thraki was seen to stop, cup his hands, dip them into the water, and drink repeatedly. Then they proceeded side by side into the woods. Yes, I followed their tracks, into those same woods, along the same path, to the same place where Teresa had asked me to take her. And it was right there for the entire night that Thraki must have celebrated his monstrous nuptials.
I found the ground dug up, broken branches, brown and white horse hair, human hair, and more blood. Not far away, drawn by the sound of her troubled breathing, I found the mare. She lay on her side, on the ground, gasping, her noble coat covered with dirt and grass. Hearing my footsteps, she lifted her head a little and followed me with the terrible stare of a spooked horse. She was not wounded, but worn out. She gave birth eight months later to a foal. In every way normal, I was told. Here, Thraki's direct traces vanish. But, as some may perhaps remember, over the following days the newspapers reported a strange series of horse rustlings, all perpetrated with the same technique, a door knocked down, the halter undone or ripped off, the animal, always a mare and always alone, led into a nearby wood, to be discovered there, exhausted. Only once did the abductor seem to meet any resistance. His chance companion of the night was found dying, her neck broken. There were six of these episodes, and they were reported in various places on the peninsula, occurring one after the other from north to south, in Voghera, in Lucca, near Lake Bracciano, in Sulmona, in Cerignola. The last happened near Lecce. Then nothing else. But perhaps this story is linked to a strange report made to the press by a fishing crew from Puglia. Just off Corfu, they had come upon a man riding a dolphin. This odd apparition swam vigorously toward the east. The sailors shouted at it, at which point the man and the gray rump sank under the water, disappearing from view. That was Jumpa Lahiri, reading Quaestio de Cantoris by Primo Levi, translated from the Italian by Jenny McPhee. The story was published in The New Yorker in June of 2015 and was included in the complete works of Primo Levi, edited by Anne Goldstein and published by Livride in September of 2015, and in The Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories, edited by Jumpa Lahiri and published by Penguin Classics in September of 2019. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Jumpa, the story is called Quaestio de Centaurus, which in Latin means the question of centaurs or the investigation into centaurs. It's almost like a children's story, the case of the centaurs or the missing centaurs, you know. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but do you think that Primo Levi intended for this to be read as a kind of light fantastical story or as something darker? My guess is both. My guess is 
that he believed in the in the in the double nature of all things and wanted to celebrate the double nature of all things of life of literature of 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 the soul of 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 everything and and that is central to to Levy's vision and central to how Levy constructed his own identity um and the identities that were imposed on him in terms of his origins his background and and we know that Levy loved adventure stories he loved Melville he read Swift um he was influenced by all of these authors my guess is that he very carefully layered both the light and the dark in the, into this story and 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 that is one of the things in my opinion that makes it so so rich so right. resonant you mentioned earlier the text that he wrote to accompany natural histories where he referred to there being a, a continuity or a bridge between his uh, experience of the camps and these fantastical stories how literal is that bridge in this story i think quite clear in terms of its discussion of purity its discussion of race vis-a-vis origins and reproduction and sort of genetic material i think he spends half the story the first half of the story writing in in this sort of mixture of scientific language but with a narrative voice behind it he goes to great lengths to write his own version of this type of very disturbing literature that was circulating at the time the right literature of eugenics of, of yeah. eugenics and so on um i can't help but think that that is intentional so this is a line from from the truce which is a second book levy publishes after this is a man and it's sort of a continuation of his story so so the return so the return from the camps is liberation and the voyage back home and there's a line in it that really struck me because i was recently looking at it again and it says this is the most immediate fruit of exile of being uprooted the dominion of the unreal over the real this made me stop and think because if we are to think of levy's time in the camps as the most brutal form of exile right and 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 the truce so movingly recounts that journey home to Torino to Turin where he was from that that was a light bulb for me in terms of understanding the natural histories understanding what stimulated these stories in him not only his previous reading and formation i mean primo levi was i think one of the most well read of authors mm-hmm. um was nourished on an incredibly rich diet of literature um including you know i mean he knew his mythology he knew his latin he knew his greek he knew that whole world intimately he knew about centaurs and 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 all sorts of creatures that are the fruit of all sorts of unions right in in the sort of greco-roman tradition so he already has that he already has that in his blood you know in his in and in, in his 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 formation as an author as a person before he goes to the camps and then this this line from the truce really made me think suddenly reality and the the real and the unreal start to communicate in mm-hmm. in a different way to one another and i and i wonder if that's was an additional force behind all of these stories that he writes after 
the truce. And I and I wonder if he's also because he refused. He was a man who refused to stay put in any one category. You know, he famously hated labels, hated to to be labeled, resisted labels, and this whole question of identity, which is so intimately linked up to the idea of origins, genetics, DNA, and so forth. He was someone who was always resisting and pushing against this. And and so in, in that sense, The Natural Histories is an exciting, such an exciting work for any writer who is also seeking to shift and to change and to complicate one's identity, because literary identity also becomes an identity that can become too much to bear or just simply too limiting. So he has this deep base foundation in classical mythology. He takes a figure like the centaur, about whom a lot has already been written, and he invents a completely new history for centaurs and a new sort of origin creation myth. Why do you think he does that? I mean, bases it on the story of Noah and the Ark, but changes the names to cut Nofessa, you know, something that sounds maybe mm-hmm. more Egyptian, mm-hmm. changes Ham to Cam, and creates this strange earth, sort of not seven days, but a, a, a pond of mud from which all life emerges in, in this multitude of forms, um, this panspermia, as he calls it. Why, why do you think he went in that direction rather than just using the classical history of the centaur? Because I think he's, ins- he's insisting on another reality, a new reality. You know, this is going back, the, you know, the bridge that connects it to the previous works. His experiences in the camps forces him into a new reality, for better or for worse. And he lives that reality and he survives it, but it becomes a part of him. And we see how he's struggling, you know, even at the very end of the truce and that incredibly moving ending of the truce where he, he's, he's free, but he's not, right? He's, he's, he's in and out of both realities. And that is going to be his condition for the rest of his life. So I think that this, this way of rewriting, um, reconceiving in his own words, I mean, because there's so much about language in this story as well, He's literally rewriting history and and the idea of authority. Who is telling the story is key in this story. Um, And even in the very beginning, in the opening paragraph, you know, the sea captain says he's from here. You know, the sea captain says he had bought him in Salonika. However, I learned from him directly that he was born in Colophon. So there's this whole sort of tension between you know, what is the truth and where do we get the truth from? What is the source of the truth? And how do we as human beings absorb the truth? And what truth do we trust? And this whole idea of secondhand knowledge. So in rewriting this sort of creation myth, which also there's a lot of sort of Ovid in there, right? Um, and, and all of these, you know, the works and the days and all of these classical texts where, you know, it's really sort of, okay, this is how we began. I think he's playing with all of that. Yeah. I was going to bring up the fact of the voices telling the story, which we have all of this, you know, background that tells us that Levy thought of himself as a centaur, that that is the character here he would be most identified with. And yet he tells the story in a first-person voice from the point of view of a different character. Why do you think we're not hearing directly from the centaur? I think it makes it, it, makes it a more interesting story. Uh, to see the centaur narrated 
from the outside. It's very much a story about friendship. And I think Levy was someone who wrote so beautifully about human bonds, about people he met, friendships he formed throughout his life, um, in the camps, out of the camps, before the camps, when he was a child, throughout his schooling. Uh, he, he writes beautiful portraits of, of friendships with people. I find this one of the most incredible things about reading Primo Levi as I just enter into those friendships that he describes, each specific, each vivid, each memorable. And so it strikes me that this is a story about a friendship, uh, about a bond, about an unusual bond between a character and uh, a half-animal. Again, it makes me think. Um, it makes me think of Gulliver's Travels. You know, the mm-hmm. end of Gulliver's Travels, where he's up in the island of, of talking horses, and mm-hmm. that's what he relates to most deeply. Is 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 this idea of the world of talking animals, which in and of itself, and in my anthology, um, I noted this theme more broadly, running across many of the stories that are included in the book, but certainly this story by Levy. Uh, to go back to your very first question, why this story? This is sort of the, the 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 centerpiece of that whole conversation of what it means to be a human being and how do we define ourselves from, you know, what is the dividing line between man and beast and is there even one? So much of classical mythology, of course, calls this into question because there are all of these hybrid creatures that yeah. come about. Um, you know, women with wings and satyrs and so forth. So there, there, there's this whole, you know, population of creatures that are that are a cross between man and beast. But I think I, am, I imagine he's he's underscoring this idea that that man himself is of a dual nature and that he is both rational and and and, and bestial creature. So I think that the narrator device allows him to have more objectivity, perhaps, on this creature. And it also allows him to do what the story really does. I mean, I think what, what is most unique about this story, which is the, the fragmented way in which we learn about the centaur, about Thraki, and we learn about him secondhand from the sea captain. Now we learn about him from the narrator's point of view. Then we learn about him from you know, the the blacksmith and the blacksmith assistant and so-and-so, and someone said this. And as the story con- proceeds and go, goes, you know, toward uh, at the very end of the story, we have yet another set of voices and perspectives and, and these sailors who have this last fleeting glimpse of him. And I think that's what's most interesting about the story in some sense, is the way that he layers the narrative point of view and that this narrator is in some sense... Um, the collector of of all of these different strands, yeah. in w- with thanks to which we are getting glimpses of of the centaur, but each is different. And again, I think this is Levy at his most incredible, sort of insisting on the multiple nature of things and the and the and the refusal to even allow a story to have a single interpretation or a character to have a single interpretation. Yeah. And the narrator doesn't have much of a character himself. We don't know that much about him. His one moment of defiance is in getting to know Draki after he's been told not to go near him. But everything else, it seems, you know, he's subsidiary, he's submissive. Even the moment with Teresa is prompted by her. She's, she leans up against him. She mm-hmm. takes him down this path. 
he doesn't seem to have anything in his life. You know, she goes away to study and then comes back. He seems to have been living in his parents' house all along. I wonder if perhaps that was a device of keeping our focus on the centaur because this character's not so interesting in himself or in his voice, or if there's another reason for that. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, Levy was a chemist. I don't know very much about chemistry. What I what I know and what I've retained is, is basically thanks to reading Primo Levy. <laughs> um, but I know that there's, in terms of creating reactions, I think sometimes you need a neutral ingredient, or is that right? Could that be? Um, my sense is is that, in that, that sort of in the alchemical makeup of the story in order to have to arrive at that reaction. He serves as that kind of neutral agent that mm-hmm. things are happening around him. Or perhaps he's just the scientist who needs to record. Maybe, maybe. I mean, he seems like the scientist in the opening pages, but he's also citing things. So he seems like a researcher. He seems to be seeking information. He doesn't seem to have all the answers, but he seems to be sort of like in a research mode, trying to gather information on, um, first of all, on the on the centaurs and their um, their origins and so forth, and citing. You know, we have citations, we have real citations, we have fake citations, we have Aristotle. Maybe it's that that positioning as well as a kind of student trying to understand. Because he's not an authoritative voice. No. You know, he's not, in that sense, he's, he's a scientist, but he's a scientist without authoritative um, information to convey. Yeah. Jenny McPhee, who translated this story, wrote that it has at its heart a deep, droll questioning of authority, be it political, cultural, academic, or mythological. Do you, do you agree with that? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think he's questioning, again... That very first paragraph is, you know, plants the seed of what is what is real and who, what do we believe? Whom do we believe? And there's so many indications of an authoritative text can be contradicted. Mm-hmm. If we think of Truckee as a kind of stand-in for, for Levy in the situation, he's, he's an outsider because he's half man, half beast, or he's not considered... He's not considered human. He's not considered pure, which obviously has parallels. Um, And he's also an outsider because he's been brought from another country, Mm -hmm. not seemingly by his own will. You know, he's been sold. He doesn't seem until the end to kind of chafe against, against his fate or to resent it. Or are we missing something? No, I mean, I think it's his, it's his inability to control control himself, literally, and and his incredible uh, sensitivity to the world and its vibrations and its movements and couplings and all of that. Um, but, I, but my sense is that it's really the human element. It's the, the, the human betrayal, the fact that this nameless friend goes into the woods with the woman he falls in love with. I think it's that what makes him explode. Yeah. Right. I think that's the reason. I think, and and in that sense, clearly privileging the human element of him, and but then showing how that human element. I mean, these are things that human beings suffer, feel, right? Can then be manifested in this quote unquote animal behavior, which is of course also clearly applicable to human beings. Yeah. And and that type of violence is something 
that is not restricted to the animal world, and we know that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, at what he does at the end, where he, you could say, rapes these six horses and breaks the neck of one, should we be viewing that from an animal point of view, or should we be viewing that from a sort of human moral point of view? I think the latter. Yeah. Absolutely. So at that point, do you lose sympathy for Tracky? I, I don't. <laughs> I don't because I feel, um, I, I, I think he's, he's exiled from the whole world of, of morality, of reason, right? He's, he's, doesn't, he's not a part of that. And that's my interpretation. I feel that we can judge the human characters in the story more easily. Mm-hmm. And, and there is self-reflection as well and sense, a sense of shame and, and just the narrator's hesitancy throughout, you know, in the beginning he says, what I will relate here. And then there are many points in the story where he says, you know, I'm about to be very pained by what I'm going to say. And there's, there are all of these, he keeps putting the brakes on it, you know, because yeah. he himself doesn't want to recount this story. He doesn't want to tell the story. And he even says, I think I'm going to lose something pure, which is an interesting word to use in that moment as well. I, I, uh, whatever he says. I, He's going to be bereft um, of something pure. Bereft, yeah. of, bereft of something pure, um, which, is, which, is, which is the memory of that friendship. Yeah. That's, I've, I've you know, in, in all the times I've read the story, each time I, I never feel able to condemn Thraki for his tremendous actions. Yeah. Uh, disturbing actions, his violence. What do you think um, happens at the very end? I mean, the last sighting we have of him is is slipping under the water. Is this is he swimming to another land, or is or is this suicide? I I'd like to think that he's swimming back toward Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's in Puglia, which is. You know, not that far. Not that far. <laughs> so I, I'd like to think of him going elsewhere, maybe not back home to Greece, to his origins, to Colophon, but but just somewhere else. I mean, he is buoyant in the very end. But I don't know. What is that last word? Is it sinking or slipping, disappearing from view? I think it's open to interpretation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like so many, so many things. Why do you think that the trackie is so sensitized to, as they put it, moments of germination, you know, be it plant or, or moments of sexuality or birth? Why, why do those send him into such a frenzy? Well, mm. in the final one, we understand there's jealousy and there's his emotions at play. But in general... All these things vibrate inside him. Yeah, I mean, it's the life force in some sense that is vibrating inside of him and the coming to being. That seems to be what he's really responding to. But I, but I think he's also someone who's completely identified with everything. That's what is also fascinating, that he, he feels what other, he feels on some sense, in some sense, in his body or on his skin things that are happening outside of himself. So it's this complete identification on a kind of physiological level with the world and its mechanics. And it's, I mean, there's a lot of sort of scientific 
subtext here, mm-hmm. right? Um, things I probably cannot even articulate or not am not equipped to talk about. Yeah. Um, but that is my sense that, you know, to read this story um, is to be able to go deep into those questions as well. And that's why the story can be read, should be read on, on so many different levels, right? And, and Calvino was also sort of obsessed with all of this scientific discourse and language and so many of his stories in a certain period are resemble the character of this story in terms of its mixing, its melding of, of, of scientific language and conventional narrative and telling a story and it's very much a story within a story. So he's playing with all sorts of storytelling traditions. You know, we know from Levy's anthology, the anthology Levy himself um, edited called A Search for Roots in English. He, he incorporated literary works, poetry, scientific texts, articles, scientific articles, and so forth. And he, he, he put them all together in this eclectic mix and called it his self-portrait mm-hmm. um, because that's exactly what, what, what he was. So he was a, a hybrid, yes, but also, you know, uh, an extraordinarily layered uh, and cultured man. A multitude of things, mm-hmm. yeah. Very Whitman-like. I mean, I think, that's, I think that's another author that I think comes to mind when I think of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Walt Whitman. I think of that, that power, that energy, that bursting power of, of Leaves of Grass, that primordial energy. For me, the sad thing is that, that that energy, finally in this story at least, goes into a moment of just destruction and self-destruction. Well, sadly, that is also what happened to Primo Levi. Yeah, of course. Right? So this extraordinary energy, this extraordinary productivity, extraordinary ability not only to survive hell on earth, but also to produce, to produce so much work in such an incredible range of styles and and approaches to to write those seminal books about his experiences in the camps and then to write the natural histories and to write beautiful poems to translate to write so many other books to be years ahead of his times in terms of you know the idea of something uh, what we think of today as auto fiction or whatever I mean just years and years ahead. Um, and still remains beyond all of all of this, uh, in my opinion, that a truly extraordinary capacity to produce, to create his own creations, right? And then at a certain point, he disappeared from view, right? Yeah. What always hovers over our reading of, of Levy, knowing what we know about his life. But also reading him, I mean, what an incredibly vital human being he was, you know, and the power of his words still, I mean, they just breathe life and specificity and experience and warmth and observation um, in a way that honestly no other writer does for me. And I've, I've found in these past years, especially reading him in Italian, that his words, I mean, I won't say he because I course, never knew him as a person, but his words have become such deep companions to me 
and that is um it's very moving to me how much they can they can enter into me and into my consciousness and um and in that sense again this story about friendship has has an additional layer of of, of meaning for me because i feel that he's someone whose words can can befriend you it's it's the language it's his it's it's what he's left it's his life that he's left on the page it's it's a beautiful afterlife yeah well thank you so much jumpa thank you thank you so much for having me here and letting me read this story primo levi who died in 1987 at age 67 was the author of numerous books of fiction nonfiction, and poetry including the periodic table the monkey's wrench if not now when and If This is a Man, a memoir about his 11 months in Auschwitz. The complete works of Primo Levi, edited by Anne Goldstein and introduced by Toni Morrison, was published in 2015. Jhumpa Lahiri is the author of four works of fiction, including Unaccustomed Earth and The Lowland, and the nonfiction work In Other Words, a memoir about learning Italian. She has received numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, the Penn Hemingway Award, and the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. She's the translator of Domenico Starnone's novels, Ties and Trick, and the editor of the 2019 Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deb Patriceman. Thanks for listening.